You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 433, Tacking Into the Wind. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every moment of Star Trek, from the series to the movies, and see if they withstand the test of time, and to try and find the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, tacking into the wind, the one where we follow the Moskva, down to Gorky Park, listening to the wind of change. Well, well, not necessarily that wind of change, but definitely similar meanings in the spirit of the song. Well, we will get to trivia in a moment, just as soon as Norman tells all of you how to stay in touch with all of us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And before I take us to the magic of the moment on a glory night, where the children of tomorrow dream away in the wind of change, here is John with this week's trivia. Thank you so much for that, Norman. Tacking into the wind. It was written by Ronald D. Moore, and here we have an episode with a heavy bit of Klingon drama in it. Seems fitting that Ron would be the guy to do it. And, well, here we are closing out on the finish line of DS9, but we are not quite done with Ron yet. He's got one more episode to go. And we mentioned before a couple of times how these final episodes were sort of written on top of each other by different writers. So that meant some coordination, even though they were working separately. Ron was told by Rene Echeverria well into his scripting that Odo was going to be revealed to have the virus before this episode. But Ron didn't want to deal with Odo actually being sick. The two went back and forth about it. Rene convinced Ron for dramatic purposes Odo had to show signs of the virus, and in the end, they both felt that it made for a stronger arc. It was directed by Mike Vehar, and this is the end of the DS9 road for Mike, but we will catch him on Voyager, where he focused the most of his Star Trek directing energy. Plus, he will be back for 10 episodes of Enterprise. In the guest star roster, well, we have some of our usual roundup of guest stars, though we won't be seeing much more of John Vickery and Cardassian makeup. Uh, Salome Jens is back as the female changeling and as someone else playing the female changeling. Robert O'Reilly's Galron is back, and how? 
we meet a new Cardassian, a part of the rebellion, and he is played by J. Paul Bomer, and he's already been working on Trek in a couple of Voyager appearances by the time this episode was made. This might be his only DS9 appearance, but he will be back three times on Enterprise. And finally, we meet an all-new Vorta, played here by Kitty Swink. We know Kitty is an accomplished actor, and we also know her as Armin Shimmerman's wife, who previously guest-starred as a Bajoran in the DS9 episode, Sanctuary. Before you ask what could go wrong in this episode, remember you can't spell go wrong without go wrong. Prologue. In their hidden resistance cave, Kira and Garrick chastise Gulrasat for the tactical sloppiness of his men after destroying a Dominion shipyard. Even though Rasat and Damar believe the mission was a success, Kira's dissatisfaction with Rasat's inability for he and his men to follow orders causes personal and professional tensions between them to rise. Before their mutual aggression comes to a boil, Odo returns and debriefs her on the success of his most recent mission. With a pained expression on his face, he takes his leave and retires to the bunk room, where his body succumbs to being ravaged by the changeling virus. Shortly after, Garrick enters, hoping to discuss details of an upcoming mission, and sees Odo in his present state of decay. Odo makes Garrick promise not to tell Kira, but he doesn't want her to worry, or her pity, and the same goes for Garrick as well. Act 1 Dr. Bashir is hard at work trying to find a cure for Odo's illness for the fourth consecutive sleepless night. A worried Chief O'Brien is concerned for Bashir's state of sleeplessness and frustration and tries to convince Julian to turn his findings over to Captain Sisko, hoping that he can contact Starfleet Security for further assistance. But an agitated Bashir lashes out at the chief, believing that Section 31 would just go deeper into hiding if they believe that they are at risk of being exposed. In Sisko's office... Chancellor Gowron thunders at Benjamin for General Martok's humiliating defeat at Avenal 7, even though Sisko tactfully points out that Martok was sent there by Gowron behind the odds of six enemy ships to one, and because of that, Martok was severely injured. Gowron knows that Martok commands the loyalty of the Klingon soldiers, so he will allow Martok to stay in command for the time being. On Cardassia, the female changeling, appearing in a similar state of decay as Odo, holds counsel with Wayun and Thot Pran of the Breen. She knows that Damar's rebellion is far too great of a distraction and a waste of time and resources, which is diverting the Dominion's efforts to defeat the Federation and its allied forces. She orders Wayun to use civilian Cardassians as cannon fodder to line possible tactical installations in order to stall Damar's terror attacks. More importantly, she wants Wayun to find Damar's family to use as leverage against him. Finally, she turns to Thought Pran and demands the Breen energy dampening weapons to be installed onto Jem'Hadar fighters post-haste. Meanwhile, Kira devises a plan to infiltrate a Cardassian repair station in the Kelvis system so that they can steal a retrofitted Jem'Hadar attack ship upgraded with the Breen energy dampening weapon so Starfleet engineering can develop a countermeasure to this Dominion tactical advantage. Garrick pulls Kira aside and warns her that Odo's condition is too severe for him to go on this mission but Kira admits that she knows that he's far gone and will not sacrifice his dignity by not bringing him along on her infiltration team. Act 2. While checking on Martok's medical condition, Worf is summoned to Captain Sisko's office. 
Upon arriving, both Worf and Benjamin share an open and candid conversation about the risk that Gowron has become to the Klingon fleet and the overall war effort. Worf admits that Gowron's motives and decisions are aimed solely at discrediting and humiliating Martok, who has become far too great of a political thorn in Gowron's side. Worf has an idea how to stop Gowron's posturing and remove him as a threat to the war effort, and Sisko, knowing that Gowron at this time is the single greatest threat to the Klingon fleet, which are the only ships capable of fighting the Breen, throws his support in with Worf, whatever his plan may be. As Kira prepares for the mission into the Kelvis system, Rasat antagonizes her for the last time. He grabs at her and Kira takes him down with the promise of continuing this encounter once the war is over. Garrick, lurking from the shadows above, warns Kira to kill Rasat sooner than later before he tries to do so first. Act 3. While in his sickbed and yet barely able to stand, Martok is visibly appalled by Worf's plan to move against Galron. Calling it an act of mutiny, Martok flatly refuses to take any action against his own chancellor. Worf tries to convince Martok that even though Galron rose to the office through the blood of noble birth, his political ambitions and personal vendetta against Martok has turned him into a leader that the Empire, nor the war effort against the Dominion, can no longer afford. Worf also reminds Martok that even the revered Kalis himself was not of noble blood, and that Martok's strength and advantage comes from the loyalty he's earned from the Klingon people. However, Martok vehemently refuses to have any part of Worf's plan. Meanwhile, on a runabout headed towards the Kelvis system, Garrick informs Damar that his wife and son were found by the Dominion. Knowing that they must be dead by his enemy's hands, Damar grieves openly and rhetorically asks his comrades, what kind of people order the murder of innocent women, children, and the innocent who are no part of his rebellion? Kira looks at Damar and asks him the very same question, knowing full well her intentions. As Damar walks away, Kira steps back for a moment, believing that she may have stepped over a line. But Garrick assures her that Damar needs to be reminded of what he has done so that he has the clarity of what he now has to do for the future of Cardassia. Act 4. Back on the station in Quarks, Ezri and Worf are discussing the current situation regarding Gowron over a few drinks. Worf regrets approaching Martok with a plot that would stain Martok's personal honor, even though Gowron would be removed from power. However, since that is no longer the case, Worf believes he is out of options to stop Gowron from his current political agenda. Turning to Ezri for advice, she tells him something he would never want to hear, that the Klingon Empire is dying and its most honorable loyal servants, like Worf and General Martok, amongst others, have become apologists for a government that is rife with corruption and dishonorable behavior. She continues stating that the Klingon Empire has been in denial for centuries, as a culture desperately clinging on to maintaining that culture of honor and integrity, even though the corruption has been overlooked at the highest levels of power, including Chancellor Gowron. With one final question, she sets Worf in motion— she asks him, as the man of decency and honor she believes him to be, If you're willing to tolerate men like Galron, then what hope is there for the Empire? After rendezvousing with their contacts on a Dominion-controlled space station, Garrick, Damar, and Rasat escort Colonel Kira, who appears to be shackled and in custody, to appear before the Vorta commanding the Jem'Hadar ship. After being disarmed before the meeting of the Vorta, one of the officers secretly acknowledges being a supporter of Legate Damar. Kira's shackles miraculously fall from her wrists, not only freeing her, 
but allowing Odo to change into a fluid form so he can enter the ship undetected through a grated deck plate. Upon presenting the Vorta with the prisoner, the female changeling suddenly appears, demands to interrogate the prisoner personally, and orders one of the Jem'Hadar to hand over his new rifle for closer inspection. Turning over the weapon to Garrick, he instantly cuts down all of the enemies as the female changeling morphs back into Odo. However, as Kira's strike team assesses the situation, it turns out that the Breen energy-dampening weapon has not been fully installed, meaning they can't leave. Act 5 Based on Garrick's calculations, the Breen engineers need at least 30 to 45 minutes to finish installing the weapon. To make matters worse, the bridge is being hailed, specifically the Vorta commander, who Garrick just eliminated. Breaking visual communications, Kira assumes the identity of Luaren and deflects any suspicions for the time being. And if she didn't, they are certainly dead. Back on Deep Space Nine, Bashir is still at it, working desperately to find Odo's cure. However, Miles stops by with a gift of Keiko's famous homemade crab rolls to help ease his friend's toiling. Miles asks Julian what would happen if Section 31 discovered that the good doctor did indeed find a cure. Would that bait an agent out of hiding and for someone from Section 31 to come all the way to the station to destroy all of Bashir's discoveries? More importantly, would they be able to capture whoever 31 sends? And when did Miles become so devious? Meanwhile, Gowron is surrounded by his generals and outlining another grandiose and risky attack strategy. This time, the target is Sarpedian V, home of the famed Cardassian 12th Order. Everyone in the room knows that Gowron's plan is certain to fail, and when General Martok speaks up, Gowron's position silences him as it has done so to so many others in the room as well. Except for Worf, who removes his Starfleet badge and calls Gowron out for leading the Empire down a path of petty political vindictiveness, which has caused the death of thousands of Klingons and tactical losses of previous hard-fought gains earlier in the war under the command of General Martok. Both warriors pull their batlets from nearby walls and engage their ceremonial fight to the death. Both Gowron and Worf swing at each other with murderous intent, giving no ground and no quarter. Gowron manages to shatter Worf's weapon into pieces, leaving Worf scrambling to defend himself with mere dagger-sized shards against Gowron's fully intact batlith. However, after knocking Worf to the ground, and with his batlith raised high overhead in a killing stance, Worf shoves his two dagger-sized shards into Gowron's midsection, ending the life of the once great Klingon leader. After Worf cries out in the traditional Klingon way, Martok cloaks him with Gowron's robe, but Worf refuses, explaining that what he did was in service to the Empire and for another leader, as he places Gowron's robe on Martok, the true future leader of the Empire, the leader of destiny. As tensions rise aboard the Jem'Hadar ship, Odo falls in agony as the virus rips through him yet again. Kira refuses to leave, and Rasat challenges her leadership at gunpoint, but Garrick draws on Rasat to stand down, as Damar draws his weapon on Garrick to do the same. And in a moment where loyalties and futures hang in the balance, Damar kills Rasat, declaring that his friend was a relic of the old Cardassia and that the remainder of them were fighting for a new future. And with that, Kira floods the rest of the ship with neurazine gas and finally slumps down next to Odo and tries to comfort him, reassuring him that Julian is working on a cure. Odo just looks on and asks her to simply stay here. 
with him. The end. Well, nice job as ever, Norman. And um, the the first question that sticks out to me in this episode is a logistical one. Uh, we open with that uh, footage of the exploding Jem'Hadar fighter, and Kira very you know wisely she's pointing out the problem with it. But who was <laughs> filming that explosion in space? Is there a Cardassian film crew in a cloaked ship just like hanging out and they they're they're the documentary team? Was, was it you uh, know, I, I need Leggett to Vahar, I think was filming that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. Leggett Vehar, yes. You know nice. uh, speaking of uh just good looking ships in space. So it's really easy to spot Klingon ships like surrounding Deep Space Nine. Because not only are they good looking, but they have that really wonderful seafoam green color that really has a mm-hmm. nice visual contrast against, say, the grayness of the station mm-hmm. or the blackness of space. It's really hard to miss a Klingon ship parked at the station. Yeah. I really, really like that. They yeah. look very cool. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you need uh, a wide eyed observation, you can find them. But spe- I had to force this in there. But speaking of <laughs> wide eyed. Let me tell you something. Uh-huh. Not in just yeah. this scene alone, but pretty much every scene that Andrew Robertson's in as Garrick. His eyes speak libraries of emotions all at once. Yeah. I, I've missed uh, having Garrick around. I, I, I feel like Garrick was such an intriguing part of earlier DS9 and it's sort of a bummer that we haven't gotten more of him mm-hmm. recently because he should be so integral to everything going on and finally we're putting him at his best use we'll we'll, we'll probably talk more about that later for sure and while uh, speaking of you know all these scenes with that group with Odo Kira Garrick um man Odo calling out Garrick and uh, just saying if I don't want pity from the woman I love why would I want it from you yeah man Odo is, that that is like classic Odo cold hiding the emotional core that he has uh, but man that's that that was some intense stuff and I do love Kira's explanation to Garrick about her knowing what's going on mm-hmm. with Odo it, it was a lovely and also very loving thing to say that felt so real like emotionally real for someone and i thought they played it out perfectly um and that was also very satisfactory to go back in the rewatch of the episode a few times and see her from the beginning knowing what's going on with odo before she reveals i it think to him. you know when she was part of the shikara resistance cell i think that there were too many times maybe where you know she loved somebody or just respected somebody to the point where mm-hmm. we may die tomorrow, we may die in a few minutes, we may die in 10 years. I'm not going to remove this person's dignity from him or her yeah. because I love them that much. It's because I wouldn't want them to do the same to me, you know, as a yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah. G- giving that person their autonomy, their dignity, their respect to live how they want to live in those final moments years whatever it might be you know that it 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 spoke volumes yeah there's a weird production when i mean production like prop issue that i had with wharf when wharf walks into cisco's Mm -hmm. office after he is summoned from martok's bed if you look at the Mm -hmm. top of his baldric at his shoulder now we're looking at him from the back 
mm-hmm. there's like a whole yep. chunk of like links missing from his baldric and it's just really? leather straps I did not notice. I don't that know at all. if it's a wow. way that they needed to make it fit easier or to lay down mm-hmm. on his front, on his chest, like smoother. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. just looked weird because there are links everywhere except for that particular area of his baldric. And I'm wondering if like they were broken or if they just didn't care or it's too late when they looked at the dailies are like, ah, you know, what are we going to do? Refilm it? Oh, that's wow. That's mm-hmm. wild. Yeah. Did not realize that. Oh, man, there's so much good stuff in this. But uh, Kira putting Rasat in his place. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. I, that is one of those scenes that every single time I watch this episode, I loved it. I anticipated it, and it still would surprise me. And I just just chef kissed mm-hmm. to that. And then ending with Garrick coming yeah. out of the shadows. I mean, that, oh, God, perfection. It's perfection. so good. It's yeah. it, it like he belongs in the shadows, and he is at his very best hidden. And then he's just yeah. so sexy when he's like half shadow, half lit. But you can see all of it know, in his eyes. It's so good. Yes. It's so good. It's so good. It, it's, it, it says everything literally and figuratively mm-hmm. about the character. Yeah, it's good stuff. Man, I you know I I know that uh, Section Thirty One is a thing now that we're dealing with in the show, and and I, I just have to point out here, you know, uh, Bashir saying Section Thirty One have managed to stay in hiding for over three hundred years. Y- yeah. Dr. Bashir. So, again, for anybody who's wondering, that they're just out there. They're just a part of the fabric of this because we retroactively decided that they are and have been for all this time. And for the record, I am still not good with that. So, yeah. So, let, let that be said. I do also love uh, Bashir's line, no more cloak and dagger games. Science is the answer here. I love that line. It speaks right to me. Um, at the same time, sorry to see a little crack in the Osh- uh, O'Brien and Bashir uh, bromance. Did you just yeah. ship? Like, yeah, they, did you create they, a they ship? You were about to say O'Bashir. I think that works. O'Bashir? Oh, O'Bashir. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, I think I did. Yeah. <laughs> All right. World, you yep. can have that. <laughs> Except for you, Alan. You don't get that. That's mine. Yeah, you don't get that one. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, so I'm glad I can speak tonight, John, for this podcast, because I literally Mm. almost bit my tongue, like through my tongue when I heard this line. Ezri says to Worf, you're the most (laughs) – I can't even get through it without laughing. (laughs) You are the most honorable and decent man I've ever met, and if you're willing to tolerate men like Galron, then what hope is there for the Empire? Come on, writers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're going to talk about that speech. Oh, we are going to talk about that. But that moment that of her saying that specifically about Worf, you're the most decent and honorable man. Give me a I break. Guess. Esri, did you watch the last five episodes? She wasn't there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I know. Right, right. Um, I do want to talk about the, uh, the female changeling at this point in the series because um, she's kind of insane. I, I, I mean... I feel like any shred of sympathy that I had for the changelings overall, pretty hard to come by at, at this point. Because if you think about it, at a certain point, we just felt like, okay, well, they they were just these puddles of goo who wanted to be left alone, but they also felt threatened by other beings in the galaxy. So they assumed this defensive posture and then offensive posture as well. And, and just want to go, hey, look, you, you can just be 
puddles of goo and not stick your gooey hands into everybody else's business, uh, like trying to take over a whole quadrant of the galaxy. But in this episode, Matt, it's not just the behind-the-scenes political maneuvering. She is calling for interrogations and executions. And I, I look, it's not just strategic war anymore. It is a campaign of terror and intimidation. Uh, changelings, I was done with you. Now I'm super mm. done with you. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. I not love good. the scene, speaking of changelings, when yes. when Kira's shackles kind of fell off. I was like, doesn't anyone want to pick those? Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was good. I like that. I was like, yes. you got me on there. Very, you got me on there. That was good. Very cool. Yep. Uh, let's see. Well, since I said the female changeling uh, was a psychopath, uh, Gowron. Hey, Gowron, madman, a jealous psychopath <laughs> saying things like, you know, a good commander finds a way to beat the odds. Like, wow. Wow. But I will give props to Cisco for a great Cisco mm-hmm. speech. Good for him standing yep. up to Gowron. Uh, oh, uh, jumping over to the Jem'Hadar ship. Wow, that thing is huge. Yeah. Uh, the the ship they docked with. And I, I mean, did you notice it, the, those sweet Battlestar Galactica style hangar bays and everything? I mean, that I thought was very cool. Uh, but that thing was massive. Now, once we're on board and once we get them to the bridge, <laughs> okay, I admit I was fooled the first time when the female chain shows up. Okay. I was, I was, because this weapon, or th- this line, ah, the new weapons, mind if I hold it? I was like, who writes this crap? What? Oh, <laughs> I see. I, and I was glad to be fooled, because it was such a clunky, bizarre moment, and it was perfect. There's a lot payoff. of kind of like those, the Mission Impossible removing the mask type moments in this, right? This was literally mm-hmm. like a changeling mm-hmm. removing that pliable mask into another pliable mask which i thought yep. was super cool we can't yep. be we can't afford to be burdened by prisoners you're right garrick and you're amazing yeah right <laughs> <laughs> also when yes. kira had yes. to impersonate luaran that's that whole like uh, han solo in the detention center scene like we're fine yes. we're all fine here now thank you how are you <laughs> How are you? <laughs> if she said that, I would have died. I would have died. That would have been great. That would have been absolutely awesome. I do have to mention the most unrealistic thing in this episode. Keiko whipped up some crab rolls. First of all, no, she didn't. <laughs> Chief O'Brien made them, and he pretended like it was Keiko. Second of all, where'd they get the crab? So, uh, I mean, look, it could be, could you just replicate the crab and the rice separately and then roll them yourself? I guess you could. Why do that when you just go to a replicator and say, I'd like a crab roll, please? This scene is full of implausibility. Well, it's replicator crab with a K, John. Oh, okay. That that kind, that kind. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And Keiko is nowhere near it. Also, I'm just, for the record, going to say that uh, the O'Brien and Bashir plan uh, vis-a-vis Section 31 is terrible. (laughs) So I'm very interested to see what happens with that. Uh, I guess we'll find out soon enough, but I think it's an awful plan. So we're going to bait a professional spy of an organization that has basically successfully hidden itself for 300 years, but we're going to catch one and make them talk. Sure. And, and expect that they'll just do what we sure, want them to do. Sure, why not? What could yeah. go wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. in, in Galron's quarters, when he was talking about the raid on the Cardassian 12th Legion, there were so many really interesting gray-haired like 
Klingon military leaders in there, but there was a, a, a woman yeah. sitting right next to Gowron. Mm. She was gray-haired, but I'm like, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people spotted that, but like in the 90s, that was, I think, a, that's a bold choice, Cotton. Yeah. Let's see how this one pays off. Yeah. But I thought it was neat <laughs> that, to see. That was cool. I thought it was neat to see. And not like in a Lursa Bator kind of way with their you know chest area enhanced to expose the whatever. She was just wearing a full-on military uniform. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I will say, you know, uh, many surprises in this episode. First time for me watching it uh, was surprised. We're just going to straight up kill Gowron. Very impressive. Um, and I was amused by his line. Because, you know, I mean, look, we, we've seen other Klingons get stabbed before and then they're fine. You know, but this time, uh, this Klingon is not fine when he gets stabbed. But I love his his parting line, you will not have this day, <laughs> and then dies. <laughs> the, the, the sweet irony of that was Do great. Do you think that Worf, like, forced his eyes open to give the audience one last look at Gowron's bug eyes? I was wondering about that. Yeah, I, I just thought, like, look, people, he, here he is. Robert O'Reilly, ladies and gentlemen, you will not forget your house. Yeah, (laughs) you know. uh, Speaking of eyes, um, I was tearing up a little bit when Worf threw the cloak on Martok. I'm like, here it is. This is it. This is one of the winds of change that's happening, like right now. Like a man that wasn't born of noble birth, he worked his way up. He Mm -hmm. he earned the respect of his people, and now someone as (laughs) noble and as honorable as Worf. Puts the cloak on top of Martok, which is amazing. A great scene. It was a beautiful scene. I I am going to have something to say about Martok that I'll save for the next segment. But yes, I I do want to come back to that. Oh, oh, I have to point out, as soon as I heard it, my mind goes back to Shakespeare in the Park, 1986, F. Marie Abraham in Twelfth Night playing Malvolio. Some men are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Fabulous, and I love that they co-opted that here and put those words into Kales's mouth. Uh, very cool. Of, uh, great men do not seek power. They have power thrust upon them. That was a lot of fun. And I will say, uh, closing out this episode, wow, wow, that standoff on the Jem'Hadar ship. I, <laughs> I was... I wasn't really expecting that. Now, look, when they got there, I was very satisfied with the resolution. We knew DeMar had it in him, but I simply did not expect that moment to arrive the way it did. Well done. Well played. Somebody out there with incredible talent and editing skills and whatnot, re-edit that scene with Ennio Morricone's score from the end of The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I was not good. expecting to be in ugly man tears at the end, but just that mm-hmm. scene where where Nana and 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 Renee look at oh. each other, there's there it's something that transcends acting, right? Um, even though that we understand yeah. the plight of their characters at that moment, there's just an an unspoken connection that they both have with each other, and when you reach that type of relationship as actors, that's what makes shows like this worth watching. We're sorry, but Lou Aaron can't take your call right now. Please stay on the line until the next order can assist you. Your attempt to hail our stolen Jem'Hadar ship is very important to us. Okay, we'll get right back to tacking into the wind, but first a word from this week's sponsor, ExpressVPN. 
Hey Norman, what what is using ExpressVPN like? Like if you had to if you had to come up with an analogy. Well, everyone loves the New Year's resolutions. And New Year's resolution number 1 is going to the gym. But if you don't use ExpressVPN, it's like watching Netflix but paying for a full gym membership but only kind of getting to use the treadmill and watch everyone else have fun banging away at making their bodies hard on the rest of the gear. That That's no good because, you know, after I uh, hit that equipment, I probably want to hit the spa, the, the hot tub, something like that. I, I don't want to pay for half a gym membership, just like I don't want to pay for half or a tenth of Netflix. Yeah, so this is how it works. You know, you don't want just to hang out at the juice bar after, you know, your treadmill. You want the full package, and this is how ExpressVPN gives you the full package. It lets you change your online location so you can control where you want, say, Netflix to think you're located. So instead of being on the treadmill, you could be at the juice bar talking to all (laughs) of the very good-looking people hanging out at the juice bar. They have almost 100 different server locations, so you can gain access to thousands of new shows, or in the analogy, lots of equipment. And very important to point out, it's not just one particular streaming service. This works with tons of other streaming services, too. So like BBC iPlayer, which I have used in the past, uh, YouTube, so many more. And in fact, I was very happy to see that on Netflix UK, Top Gear... I love Top Gear, and that show became increasingly more difficult to find in the U.S. Netflix UK makes it very easy. So all you do is you open up the ExpressVPN app, you select your location, you tap one button, just one button to connect, and then refresh the page where you are, and then all that geo-restricted content that would have been there, that, that just melts away those restrictions just go away so you can watch what you want to watch and in my case you can watch people drive very expensive cars yeah i love how you phrase that john with just the one click or the one punch of the button because that's why expressvpn is why you should choose it over so many other vpns it's super fast you can stream in hd with zero buffering it's compatible with all your devices i have it on my phone and i have it on my laptop it uh, also can be installed on media consoles smart tvs and more and it encrypts your data with that tunnel technology. It encrypts your data peer-to-peer. So ExpressVPN has the added benefit of encrypting your data so you can browse the web securely. And then you can basically be on a very armored treadmill if you want, or... Yes, yeah. we all love armored treadmills. Something for the new year. <laughs> I like that. All right, so be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash mission log to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Okay, John, so here we are. When we have our hands on the rudder, we're going to tack into the wind. Is that what you do? I, it's been a long time since I've been sailing. Um, yep. But I, I, that is a thing where you're going against the wind, but you're making little little turns to like keep going. I, that's my, my sailing days. are. That was a long time ago, okay? <laughs> we are going to put a pin in that because we're the, there's a special segment towards the end when we play oh. the title game. Oh, right on. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. 
Good. So we're going to do a little bit of the title game with Tacking into the Wind. But for right now, let's get started with mm-hmm. something that you made mention of in Observations. It's wonderful to have Andrew Robinson back as Garrick. Yes. I feel that since uh, we didn't really see him since the beginning with the psychosis and with bringing on Esri as counselor, we haven't seen much of him participate in this season at all, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. But now we have him. And we have him with a vengeance because something that I found really interesting, his level of Machiavellian manipulation with Kira <laughs> is very disturbing to watch mm-hmm. in a very satisfying way because it's Garrick. Mm-hmm. But he is working on some different level of strategy here. I mean, not just with Kira, but with Rasat and Damar. What's his end game? There's always a play with Garrick, what's he trying to do? Well, so let's think about the thing that Garrick has always wanted and has never been able to have, and that is... Bashir? Ex- <laughs> Mic drop, done with the show, run the credits. <laughs> the opportunity presented itself. It was like there. What Garrick would do. It was Okay, so what is the second thing that Garrick has wanted since the beginning of DS9? That I can't answer. I okay, well, well, that is, I believe, it, to be back in Cardassia, back at Cardassia Prime, back among his his peers, back among Cardassian people, and to have their respect. Because otherwise, he has been this outcast who is living on Deep Space Nine, pretending to be a tailor, although apparently he's a pretty good tailor, too. Here is an opportunity for him, seeing the new leadership of Cardassia rise right before his eyes, that could actually get him back home. And back, maybe not in the Obsidian oh. Order or something, but back with the respect of his people. He couldn't get that from Dukat. He couldn't get that from anybody left in the Obsidian Order. So now, maybe now is the chance. And I will say this. It is Machiavellian. It is everything he does is calculated. He's playing 3D chess all the time, every minute. He's not wrong about any of it, though. You know? Yeah. There is a certain self-preservationist, you know, uh, mm-hmm. endgame, but in, in a way where, yes, he. when you think about the, the in the terms that you put it in, he's doing all of this just to get home. Mm-hmm. That's that's fascinating. And yes, chess in three dimensions, also fascinating. <laughs> I, I just feel like he's a guy who he wants very badly to have what he did have. But maybe he's also changed a little bit along the way. Like maybe there are some principles that he sees as worthy in addition to just being purely, uh, you know, serving his his own needs. You know, Do you I, think if he made it back, would he want to rebuild the Obsidian Order and kind of take the the, the leadership de facto where, uh, where his father didn't, you know, maybe serve the the government as well? I, maybe, maybe not. I, I mean, it, it, maybe he's been around DS9 and Starfleet and the Federation enough that he sees that there is some value in some different ideals. And he sees Damar as, you know, that that's what's so telling about that conversation between him and Kira after the reveal about Damar's family is he's saying like, no, you, you by saying that, that, that may have been the right time to tell him this so he can be better. Mm-hmm. You know that, so I, I feel like there is something of value there. In addition to just like I'm going to go get what I want, I'm going to go rebuild the Obsidian Order. I, you know, I, it, it's one of those strange things where Garrick, you can't 
you don't feel like you absolutely 100% trust him <laughs> on anything. But this is a different Garrick than we've seen in a while. And, and this is a Garrick, by the way, that I have missed. You know, I, I want him to be a part of the action. And, and here he very much is. Mm-hmm. I will say that, it, you know, there are aspects of this episode that feel like shades in the mirror universe, particularly when we talk about, uh, you know, Gowron just sending Martok off to potentially be killed in all of these dangerous missions. And then the only way to get rid of Gowron is to kill him. Uh, This, you know, as we said way back when on Mission Log, this might be the way to build an empire, but it is not a great way to maintain a civilization. Um, And, you know, well, we'll we'll get to Esri's uh, dissection of that. But uh, it did make me think of Star Trek past in the way that there's this pressure put on individuals at the time of need to say you can help to steer this in the right direction and since we're well i kind of look at it as you know a a study in two leaders who are coming into their own you know damar and martok and it's the these two different paths that they're on to try to get to a similar place which is to do what is right for their people and well you know Cross all of those hurdles along the way, but let's let's talk about Damar first. So I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on Damar because he's kind of been the hero here the last uh, few episodes. Well, I'm going to actually correct a note that I've written here, and mm. and I'll read it for for everyone because this is where I thought that I saw Damar's final moment of transformation. I thought that was during the scene where he said to Kira. They weren't a part of this rebellion. The Dominion knew that. The Founder knew that. Wayon knew that. To mm-hmm. kill her in my son, the casual brutality of it. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say, what kind of people gives those orders? Mm-hmm. And Kira looks at him and says, yeah, Damar, what kind of people give those orders? Mm-hmm. You did that yeah. to my people, what, 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. Or even mm-hmm. in recent history? That's where... I did agree with Garrick saying, no, Kira, you need to push him and remind him that in order for Damar to change to be the leader that we need him to be, he has to he has to be reminded of the brutality of the decisions that he made in the past. You can't just do good now and expect to be forgiven of the sins from previous. That's not how this works. However, that's not the moment where I, I felt that Damar changed. I but, so, but wait, because, hold, hold that thought just a second, because I, I do want to point out, you know, not two episodes ago, it's Kira telling Cardassians, oh, yeah, I also attacked targets that had Bajorans in them because I'm willing to do whatever it would take to, you know, achieve a goal. So mm-hmm. Kira, yes, I understand. I fully understand Kira's anger toward Damar at, at hearing that and, and the tone deafness of that and I'm glad that she pointed it out and I think Garrick's advice to her right after that was spot on it was such a good scene done with, with this brilliant efficiency let's also not, not let Kira totally off the hook here because Kira has been directly involved in that herself true enough and I'm glad yeah. you brought that point up mm-hmm. because that that ties in directly with the moment when I think Damar actually became the leader of Cardassia, and that's when he shot Rasat. Yeah. Great right? scene. Yeah. Because Rasat, like Galron, 
and we're going to get to that in a second, yeah. represented the old order, the order that wouldn't change, the order that these men or women have built um, an entire empire upon for generations of the civilization and have apologized for and have murdered for and have created secrets for and have created entire occupations for. And that's what Rasat was. That was He was one of the last reminders in Damar's life of who they were. And once he chose to murder that, he chose to murder a part of himself, mm-hmm. to kill that part of himself, saying we can no longer... We can no longer entrench ourselves in the excuses of the past to uh, to change the present, to change the future. I have to rid myself of all of it. And I think that actually ties into what Kira said very well. Kira's like, you have to make the decision to be able to murder your own people in order to, in order to affect the change of a greater good. This is that moment. Yeah. And when that happened, everything, the winds of change changed for his favor well we'll see that's but i that's what i believe what about well you? yeah no i mean i i had been questioning all along you know is damar acting for the right principle is it totally self-serving and and you know we all hope that he's acting uh, uh, out, out of the best interests of the people of Cardassia. So that th- this is all very interesting. This episode seems tailor-made to just show what is inside him and, and what is driving him. And, and all these very logical and understandable steps along the way. Uh, that very painful reveal about his wife and child that just it played true and i wrote down the same line that you did you know the the casual brutality i thought that was so well done and and that is the tragedy of war right there which is when you have become that thing and you don't even know it you know he was that thing and he didn't realize it kira well, she was that thing too in a different context in a different way absolutely she's playing defensively But I was so impressed with that scene and that scene immediately after. Kira's reaction was understandable, 100%. I love that she checked herself afterward. I love that tinge of regret that she had Mm -hmm. because there was still a sensitivity like, did I – did, did that just come out of my mouth? And did I even do that at the right time? Will it have impact? Will I, you know, all these thoughts you can see going through her head. Again, because she's not exactly innocent to all of this either. Garrick's words immediately after were perfect. And what I thought was, you know, as we're seeing these two parallel changes in power and rise to power, Damar here, he is living what Worf really needed to experience for himself i i love damar's line when he kills rasat he was my friend but his cardassia is dead and won't be coming back damar got to live all those experiences and and absorb them and see what the end game was going to be Worf, on the other hand had to be sat literally sat down and explained to (laughs) what was going on so I kind of I wanted to see Worf live this experience in the way that Damar did, but it took a different cir- set of uh, circumstances for him. And you know, I, before we really focus in on Worf's journey here, 
I, I, this might be the unpopular opinion, but I will say that I am a little bit disappointed in Martok, or maybe I was playing the home version and I just had this kind of alternate script going in my head. And yeah, I apologize, folks, putting on the writer's hat here for a moment. Um, we needed to have those scenes where Martok pledges his loyalty to the Empire. He sees himself as, as a servant, and that is good and noble. And at the same time, Martok is a smart guy. He, he has been, you know, my favorite Klingon so far in this whole journey. He sees what's happening, and someone has to be the whistleblower. And I, I know that just from a production point of view, Worf is the regular lead cast member here. And we have to have him step up to the plate, especially since, well, he has been awful in so many ways recently. But I wanted Martok to make his case about his loyalty to the Empire and how he's a servant. And then at some point realize for himself that the principle was so much more important than his loyalty to a person. I wanted to get like and I, I, I honestly I don't want to take anything away from Worf here because it was a dramatic scene. I just wanted to feel like it, it, it wasn't another instance of Martok coming back. And you remember, you know, last season here, here's Martok kind of easing back into this role as a military commander, but he's not that good. So he needs to have his hand held a little bit to get him back on his feet. And then finally he can, well, we're past that now. Mm -hmm. So I want him to really own that position of leadership and be the guy who, who takes that fight on himself. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's a really good example here of Martok, the, the elephant and the elephant in the chain example, the, the story yeah. of, you know, a, a passerby, you know, mentions to an elephant handler, like, why is that elephant tied to a chain? It's because when it grows up, we tie it to a string of twine and it doesn't it doesn't know that it's no longer tied to a chain anymore. That's what's happened to Martok. That's what happened to pretty much everyone that's been seated around that table when Gowron was talking about you know, fighting these ridiculous battles of 20 to 1, 30 to 1 against, Yeah, right? They have all been conditioned by the Empire to believe that the Chancellor is infallible. And when they do speak up, as Gowron um, challenged Martok that moment, Martok's like, I know I'm right, but the conditioning prevents me from going further. And I think that this is where Worf does shine in a way because mm -hmm. he has been taught to think independently of the Empire because of Starfleet and because of maybe influences like Jean-Luc Picard. Mm -hmm. Now, that hasn't been usually the case throughout his entire run on Deep Space Nine, which has made his character supremely disappointing for the most part. But when you see a moment like this, you realize that there it is. There's the independent thinker that Starfleet has trained and that great mentors like Picard, like Troy, like Riker, like people that have influenced him from the Enterprise have allowed him to be and take risks the way he did at that moment. Mm -hmm. And Or maybe he felt like, you know what? Martok has put everything on the line for me. I have nothing to lose anymore. Jadzia is gone. It's not like my career in Starfleet has gone any further because I made that choice earlier on that will never get me a command, as Cisco said. So you know what? I might as well do the right thing at this point in time of my career because I got nothing left in the tank. Well, what do you think about Esri's words to Worf then? <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, with the exception of what she said about him being the most noble and honorable <laughs> yeah. Klingon I've ever met, 
I mean, yes, I can eye roll that, but I'm sure a lot of people would disagree, and that's fine. It's just that yeah. there isn't enough consistency to prove what she said is being true. Yeah. I do think that someone outside of the empire is the right person to tell you that, you know what? Your culture sucks, bro. <laughs> and here's why, right? And he's like, you're not wrong, but what do I do about it? And it's like, well, there's one thing that you need to do. You need to take the, out the reason why your culture sucks. Right? Yeah. You have to be that person. You have to tack into the wind, right? It's uncomfortable, and it's going to blow your you know, you know, perfectly quaffed Klingon hair around. <laughs> but you know, in all seriousness, you have to be the agent of change. Yeah. You have to, because if you don't, who's going to? And certainly wasn't Martok. No, I, I, I got to say, for me, that is a, in an episode full of powerful moments and dramatic moments like that, that ending with Odo and Kira and the standoff with Damar. Uh, the thing that will stick with me from this episode is Esri sitting down and laying it all out to Worf. Look, I, I already liked Esri. I just didn't really like some of the Esri stories we were getting up until now. But then that monologue came. That explanation, that come-to-Jesus talk with Worf, the Klingon Empire deserves to die. Can I get an amen? Because amen. That, that, that was the moment. That was the moment. And I love this. You, you talk about honor, but you're willing to accept corruption. You covered up crimes because you were told it was for the good of the Empire. Please. Everyone who is hearing this, if you didn't pause that scene and rewind it and watch it again... Stop our podcast and go do so again right now. This, to me, this is brilliant. This is Star Trek even calling itself out for all the dumb things that they've let slide. It's at least a dozen conversations that we've had on Mission Log since the beginning about principle and how and why you fight for it every step of the way, even when it isn't convenient, especially when it isn't convenient. Esri, may I introduce you to Section 31? May I also introduce you to several of the people that you work for directly, because they need to hear your speech, too. And finally, Esri, if I may, may I introduce you to anyone who has written into this show to make a case for how sometimes things just get a little too difficult and we have to bend our sense of ethics and abandon our principles and suspend what's just. It's just more realistic that way, right? Well, yeah, that, that's realism. It, it's more realistic to expect that we can't find solutions without ignoring inconveniences like our own integrity. If your beloved institutions can't stand up to criticism, if it can't even exist without corruption as one of the baked-in features, then yes, Esri, it deserves to die. I'm glad the Klingons are civilized enough to follow whoever wears the cloak full of shiny pins. It's so much more civilized than following whoever has the biggest helmet. Well, here we are, John. We have tacked successfully in and out and back into the wind. And here we are at the end of the episode where we take a look at does it hold up? And then we take a look at double M's. 
morals and meanings. Oh, actually, triple M's, yeah. morals, meanings, and messages. But sometimes they only have, like, one. Sometimes. M. Sometimes it's just, what did you learn today? And the, the M's go right out the window. <laughs> How about one L, then? Yeah. One learn. There we go. What did you learn today? Yeah. 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 So uh, let's take a look at, does the episode hold up for you? Yeah, uh, it, it is uh, an emphatic, capitalized yes, followed by multiple exclamation points. Um, I, I think there is so much happening in this episode that is satisfying emotionally. We, we have those really intimate scenes with uh, Kira and Odo that are just lovely to watch. We have the the earned heroism of a guy like Damar. I think that that really is such a standout here that all those moments, they, they don't feel manufactured. They, they feel natural for this character because we've been on such a journey with him. And it's really satisfying to see. While I do have that one misgiving about the Gowron Martok Wharf storyline, I'm willing to accept it because we got that great moment with Ezri laying it all out for Worf to understand, to get it through his ridged skull. And yes, I could see a different version of this where Martok more so steps up to the plate, but I'm just glad that we got Martok in that cloak at the end and that he is the head of what will become the next phase of the Klingon Empire, which hopefully is uh, a better and brighter future than they've had so far. So uh, this clearly works as part of the, the overall story. Uh, everything that happens serves the plot details that we've been fed up until now. Uh, but just as a self-contained show that has really exceptional earned dramatic moments i think this works incredibly well what about you well before i answer that john so mm -hmm. i'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to bring back uh, something that we haven't done in a while i'm going to bring back the title game hey, it's the title game all right it's the title right. game. okay tacking into the wind uh, the title game we we made mention of this before and you know we have made light of it but there is a very specific kind of visual cue to tacking into the wind. So tacking is a sailing maneuver. That's a boat. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> with yes. a sail. Yeah. By which a sailing vessel whose desired course is into the wind turns its bow towards and through the wind so that the direction from which the wind blows changes from one side of the boat to the other, allowing progress in the desired direction. Now, there is a risk involved with it with the with the bow um, and the sail shifting side to side so that you have the sail boom might smack you mm. as it shifts with the course of the wind. So that could be a metaphor for several things in this episode. But in other words, steering directly into the winds of change headlong and head on. That's what this episode's all about. That is essentially where I am with... This episode, with what you said, I know that we've apologized for kind of like putting our, our, our you know, our, our feelings and our critiques and criticisms and compliments in this section on repeat mm -hmm. because there really isn't a great deal that I could weigh on, weigh in on that would add any more than what you said. Uh, this is a powerful, thought-provoking, sublimely executed and acted narrative. And I, I said this about Odo's and um, and Kira's kind of look at the end mm -hmm. of this episode uh, that kind of summarizes how I feel about it. 
this is the stuff that makes science fiction stories worth watching. Yeah. And it's not just great science fiction. It's great Star Trek. Yeah. Right? Because it really balances the character motivations, the repercussions of their choices. And in true trademark fashion, what makes this Star Trek, uh, this episode of Star Trek, is its ability to demonstrate through its characters of being agents of change through their own self-awareness and both their own moral and mortal decisions, not the decisions of gods, Mm -hmm. not the decisions of energy beings, not Mm -hmm. the decisions of temporal mechanics, but their own decisions at this very moment in time. Damar murdering his friend. Yeah. Worf murdering Chancellor Galron. Those are their decisions. Yeah. That make the change happen. And look at how satisfying that is when we haven't, uh, until now, we haven't said the P word in this episode at all. <laughs> Profits. Exactly. <laughs> and look at how satisfying that is, because it isn't a discussion about like, well, did the prophets want it? Did they not? Why Why can't they speak in complete sentences that make sense? Why, you know, it's just like, no, no, no. These are people making moral decisions based on what is right. And that is very satisfying to see. So in that respect. What morals or meanings or messages did you pick up from this episode? Well, I know that this particular moral motif, quote unquote, is used in a great deal of Star Trek, not just this episode. But in this case, I don't think that there is a greater representation to describe just kind of like the moral fiber and center of this episode than the great Vulcan mantra of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Both Damar and Worf see that their beloved cultures and civilizations are on the knife's edge between remaining in the status quo and revolutionary change. And neither truly want that mantle of leadership that this change will eventually demand. But they also can't watch idly by as apologists, as they are being the apologists, I should say, for the Mm. perpetuation of their decaying societies. Revolutions happen when the catalyst of the present conditions cause decisions to be made in the moment. When those who have the capacity to see change make that ultimate choice, as Worf did with murdering Chancellor Galron and as Damar did with murdering his friend, or even make the ultimate sacrifice to put the lives and the needs of the many over the few or especially themselves. These are the moments and the decisions where true heroism is born. Not by simply choosing the path of the hero, but sacrificing that path so that the greater good is served. And there's no more moving experience in fandom than watching characters, characters that we love, Mm -hmm. transform in that moment from wanting to be the advocate of change to becoming the living embodiment and personification of revolution. And I thought it was impressive and responsible for the writers to have Kira witness that ultimate change in Damar as she at one time was such a manifestation of change for her own people against the Cardassians. One cannot help but be moved to tears, understanding the irony and the significance of that moment. Now, as for Worf, I was applauding his scene where he draped Martok with the symbolic cloak of leadership Mm -hmm. as, as he turned it down. He knew he isn't the leader of his people, the leader that they needed, but he knew that he had to act. So Martok 
so that his hands weren't stained with the blood of that moment, mm. so that he could become the true future of the Klingon Empire, that leader of destiny. Worf's act proved that the loyalty that Martok inspired in his people, as it did in Worf, was beyond reproach and exemplified something greater than the embodiment of heroism. And that is the belief that one man can change the present. So how did you feel about this? Okay, you know what? Maybe you... I, I like what you said there because maybe you've pushed me a little bit into more acceptance of how the Worf, Gowron, Martok dynamic played out. Martok can't have his hands bloodied by that because then you're simply perpetuating the same thing that got us to this in the first place, which is the next guy who comes along can kill the Emperor and that's how we've been doing it for how many millennia. So maybe I'm a little bit better with Worf doing that and with Worf having the foresight to realize that he is not the guy to lead the Empire. But I still wanted to see something else in Martok this episode. Yeah, yeah, I don't love Martok any less. <laughs> He's still my go-to Klingon. But I, I, I'm going to be playing that, that dynamic out for a bit. And these are the, the interesting things about this episode and the string of episodes that we've gotten uh, uh, up to this point so far. We've talked, and I've mentioned it before, how interesting it is to see these characters grapple with the idea of, you know, principle and their values being of utmost importance. And Damar absolutely embodied that here in this episode. That that was great to see. He had to do it in a dramatic, difficult fashion. He had to get some difficult news as well. Uh, but again, he embodied this idea of, of the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few or the one in this case. Kira and Odo show it too. I, I, I think it's so lovely the way that they treat each other and even in this sort of understood well <laughs> i know but you're not supposed to know that i know but we'll still be here for each other i mean they, it, it's absolutely lovely and so real the way that works and then ultimately in this episode there's Worf and esri and to me that just is the heart and soul of this episode and it is so important that it is and it stays the heart of Star Trek. And to to go on what I was saying in the last segment, because I think it is so important, Esri says to him, if you're willing to tolerate men like Gowron, then what hope is there for the Empire? And I, if I wasn't just so happy to hear Esri's words to Worf, I might actually be in tears about that, because there is a real and true dark side to that that is like a lot of science fiction good science fiction that reflects the here and now john doesn't that remind you of when kirk said in star trek six then how can history get past people like me yeah yeah that, that that's you know every time that we have a conversation in person or at a convention or something and and uh, we talk about Star Trek being about the future, and I will always come back and counter with Star Trek is about right now. Star Trek in the 60s was about now in the 1960s. Star Trek in the 80s and 90s was about the political and social reality of that time. And there is something that is so perfect and and yet chilling about what happens in that scene with Esri because it feels even more 
painfully relevant now. Look, I'm not naive enough to think that many of our institutions in the real world, public or private, don't have corruptions and compromises that have allowed them the convenience of survival. But what's required of all of us, though, is to constantly expose those corruptions to daylight. And if we can't find a better way, then dismantle it and do better. We live at a time when public servants can and do often blatantly and without remorse show up on cable news and on the internet and willingly defend the very worst of human behavior and the worst expressions of our institutions. People of integrity often don't speak up, like Worf, either out of frustration or fear or the feeling that their voices won't be heard. And that benign resignation that that's just how things are is what has gotten us to that point. In this moment, Worf should be any and all of us hearing Esri's words. That if he's a person of integrity who will just allow the status quo to exist, then he's utterly failing to live up to any of the values that he claims to have. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Extreme Measures. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. There's only one way Miles could suddenly be so devious, the Chief's wearing his spy pants now. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.